You are listening to Read It, Roll It, Hole It. He's two putts from victory. Only needs one. Welcome golfers to the uh, Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. Really excited to have a um, special guest on from Ireland, Dr. Ed um, Collan. Is that right? That's good. That's good for me. <laughs> I uh, I must say we've had that conversation for about five minutes before we come on. Um, my uh, being being Welsh and dyslexic is my excuse anyway. But um, thank you so much for joining us, Ed. Um, I'll call you Doctor Ed or Ed from now on, so I don't have to say your surname. Ed works. Ali, thanks so much for for asking me on. It, it, it's a, always a treat to, as we said before, and it's always a treat to just to talk with other coaches. I think when coaches get down and just chat about things. I think it can it can clear away a lot of the cobwebs for some people listening in and just get to some practical applications of some of the work that's out there. And I'm always happy to share some things that I'm doing. And oftentimes in these chats, I, I figure out better ways of doing things and also things that maybe I wasn't doing so well all along. So it's uh, it's always good to talk. Brilliant. Great stuff. I'm looking forward to, to seeing where the journey uh, journey goes today. So uh, Ed, just start off with like, tell us like about your, your, your story perhaps and like what, what you're doing currently. Yeah. Uh, a brief background, a sports science graduate uh, from a number of years back. Um, during even uh, before I went back to do sports science, I was already coaching. Um, I was already coaching in, very much in kind of the athletics, track and field and strength and conditioning space around that area. But went back to university with a very clear picture of what I wanted to do. And skill acquisition had come across my, you know, kind of, kind of come across my path with some uh, papers that I found from the late 90s. Um, and so a couple of papers from Damien Farrell that I, that just kind of blew me away. I was like, I didn't even know about this as an area at all back then. And so I went back to university with a real focus, which was which was good for me because I, I think back then I probably was a little all over the place, let's say, um, and kind of picking up bits and pieces from everywhere, but not really knowing how to put it together. So when I finished that degree, um, it was lovely. I, I, I really enjoyed it, but it brought me straight to the door of Mark Williams, Professor Mark Williams at, at John Murray's University in Liverpool. And... Uh, from a very quick meeting and a discussion about my final year dissertation, he accepted me onto his his PhD team, uh, where I, I then spent a number of years at Liverpool um, doing a PhD in skill acquisition and looking in particular at, at, at deliberate practice and the opera- operationalization of deliberate practice. How do we actually make del- deliberate practice accessible to more people, but also to untangle it a little bit more to make it something that we can use in our sessions? Um, and then, as I said, I was you know, coaching all the time through even throughout my PhD as well. Um, and then about four or five years ago, um, having worked for, with, with discrete skill specialists uh, in their sports, let's say free throw shooters and three point shooters in basketball and free kick takers in soccer, rugby, Gaelic football, free takers in, in hurling and things like that. Um, the golf space kept coming up. To be honest, I kept getting asked about different things and would, would I look at golf and this, that and the other. I never really thought about it, to be honest. Um, I hadn't played golf at a, at a very high level. I played it all my life, still play it, love it. Grew up in a very golfy family in, the, you know, all seven of us at one point were all joined the local club and stuff, let's say. But I was never a scratch golfer or anything like that, let's say, you know. Uh, that was more my brother, who was a very good golfer. But, but so I grew up around it Um but never thought about working in it, um, even though a lot of the work I was doing was probably you know, a good fit for golf, especially with the discrete uh, side of things. 
discrete skill side of things. And yeah, about nearly five, nearly five years ago now, I started having a look at it. Um, and within a year or so, I started. I was working with a few pros. Um, and that's what I'm still doing. I'm working with pros now on a few of the different tours around the place. And it's fantastic, to be honest. I, I love it. Um, it's pretty much all I do now outside of obviously my day job. I'm a, I'm a lecturer in skill acquisitions and applied sports psychology in, um, in Munster Technological University here in Cork. And uh, when I'm not working as an academic, I'm working as a coach with, with, some, uh, with some pro golfers just trying to, like the rest of us, trying to help them get better, you know. Um, it's, a very, it's a very rewarding space because they're already good. You know, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be considering being a pro if they weren't already good. So you're looking for those edges, you know, you're looking to see where can they find those gains. And that's where I'm at right now. Fantastic. That's great. Going back to, um, you know, you mentioned that golf kept coming up. What were the similarities you found from sort of uh, goal kicking for example like you know in rugby union goal kicking obviously is a, a important task um yeah what were the similarities that were coming up yeah good question i think uh, it, it was interesting how did it keep coming up it kept coming up because a lot of the athletes i was working with back in those days for you know that kind of 10 12 year period so many of them knew professional golfers themselves knew got because as you know yourself elite athletes kind of they all know each other you know there's there there is a there is almost that kind of elite athlete community out there, um, and it, as I said, it was actually in one of the rugby situations that I was working with the kicker, and he was like, as a, as a mate of mine, he's a pro golfer, and I and I, I was like, all oh, right, yeah, it was, you know, I'm not, I don't I don't know golf that well because back then my idea of golf was well, it's highly technical and you need to know everything about the swing to be able to have an impact and. But in the same case, of course, there I was working with a professional rugby player. I'd never played professional rugby, and but I hadn't made that connection. I hadn't made that distinction that it's possible to work with someone on the development of the practice and, and that space. And and then, as I said, it was in that one of those one of those conversations. I began to make those connections that there is a lot of similarity. There's a lot of requirement for an athlete to be able to forget what just happened and be able to be in the moment and present, but also then to be able to, to be able to engage in the task that's in front of them wholly, regardless of what's going on around them then at that time. And then more than anything else, to be able to then switch back into what's next. Forget about what then just happens, be that a conversion after a try or a penalty or whatever it is, a kick to touch. And there's so much of that in golf, being able to forget what's happened in the lead up to the shots that you're about to play, um, engage in that situation wholly, and then forget about it immediately thereafter to be able to be ready for the, the next shot. Um, and I suppose that's, if, if, if you were to nail me down to a specialist area, my specialist area would be practice transfer, developing robust practice environments that athletes feel in, in, a, in a practice session with me that this feels a lot like I feel when I'm competing. Um, and that means sometimes it gets pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, ugly and awkward and so on and so forth. But you know what? That's kind of what the, they're the words they use themselves when, when they are under the gun. Let's say, you know? Fantastic. There's so many, my mind's spinning with like questions to ask. I'd love to come back to the, the sort of post shot, um, the way you, uh, 
um, yeah, react and respond to that. But can we go back to um, what what you just said? I, I knew I was going to forget what I was going to say. Then let's go. Let's go with um, let's go with the 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 post shot. Then oh, that's it. Sorry. Let's go practice. That's what I was going to talk about. Practice. Golfers, I'd say traditionally golf has been like someone invented driving ranges, probably a businessman, and people go to the driving range and they call it practice. But as we know, it's like hitting 50 balls with a seven iron is nothing to do with playing golf. It's a completely different skill. Not alone putting, people take three balls on the putting green and hit three balls around the place. So let's let's perhaps go down that rabbit hole of practice and, and yeah, t- tell me like what golfers do bad and how perhaps they can improve to transfer yeah, I, I suppose that would be the first thing I, I I would I would be I'd be you know checking in on um I don't know do golfers per se as players do things bad in one sense I often find what happens with with golfers because they don't intend to do bad practice nobody does what I find and what I found the last kind of four to five years is how much of the work that they're doing is a copy is a copy from somewhere else it's not authentic to them so it's you know why are you doing this oh i saw you know and and sometimes it's like oh i saw justin thomas doing this at you know the tpc and you're like what how how do you mean and you're and you're looking at the person you're like, oh really and you're like because you know they weren't there you know so it was just on tv they caught a clip of him doing drill on the pudding green you know and that that's why why they and oh I, and I did it and I liked it and that's why I still do it and you're like how do you mean well, well I did it there one day and I went out and I put it really well that day so I've been doing it ever since and I was like well have you put it really well every day since then well well no I said okay so, so why are you still doing it if, if the reason you did it the first time was because you saw Jay, Justin Thomas doing it and then the reason you kept doing it is because you put it really well the day you the day after you did it but you're, that was six months ago and you're still doing it, but you haven't put it the same since. The rationale has many has too many holes in it for my liking, let's say. So I don't think anyone ever sets out, you know, as you said, I don't think it's ever that it's bad. I think it's just not authentic to them. And I think that's something that I spend quite a bit of time with, with uh, players to try and find out what actually do you need yourself? What's your performance be it from some stats, from a series of chats with me around different in, in scenarios, environments they found themselves in. What is screaming out at you? What's, a, what's, a, what's that flag that keeps waving in the background that you're not paying enough attention to, to actually implement into your practice schedule? Oftentimes when we do find out what that thing is, and there may be a few of them, but then you try and prioritize that one thing because that will have the biggest if, impact on the rest of the game. It's oftentimes something that they will say something along the lines of, yeah, well, you know, it's just not, it's, it's not a great part of my game. And so, okay, so how do you know that? Oh, well, I've tried that in the past. And, you know, I don't really like that practice and I don't, so, so there's automatically this bias against this, which of course has created a blind spot in their own thinking around, well, I'm not that good at this. And what happens when we, you know, you know, it's like any of us when we're in school, you get a good mark in English one day and all of a sudden you think, oh, I'm really good at English. And the same day you get a poor mark in maths. Well, I'm not great at maths. And then when you go home that evening, what are you going to want to work at? You're going to want to work. And this is without any impact or intervention from parents or teachers. You're going to want to do the English because you think you're good at it. So I'm going to do a little bit more of English. And all of a sudden 
this self-fulfilling prophecy starts developing around English in a positive way. But at the same time, there's this self-fulfilling prophecy around the maths going the other direction. The exact same things are happening with pro golfers and club golfers, but I don't, I don't work too much in that space, but I know it is the same thing. And I think that's, that's oftentimes what happens. They're not practicing in, 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 on tasks that are authentic to themselves, that are genuinely focused on improving their performance or are relevant to improving their overall performance. And I, that's something that, that's something that requires that little bit of time. I think, I think if Ed 15, 20 years ago was in that space, it would have gotten lost. And because I was very much in a rush back then, I was very much the coach in the middle and kind of with all everything organized, structured. It was so, it was to military precision, my sessions. But oftentimes then, of course, there's not that much time for those type of informal chats about, well, what's actually really needed, you know? Um, they may want to do certain things, but do they, you know, that's very different to what they need to do. And I think that's, that's something that I think is a consistent thread for me in those early conversations with, with the golfers that I've, I, I've worked with and, and continue to work with. Trying to find that authentic practice session for each of the different parts of their games. That is, that truly reflects what is required for them, for their game, and, and ultimately will transfer if they engage it properly into the competitive environment. Like it, I like that. So it's so true, isn't it? Where you know, golfers, Tiger Woods putted, put, still does putt through a gate, two tee pegs, and the putt puts through it, puts through it. And people think, well, if I do that drill, then I'm going to be like as good as Tiger Woods. And you know, there's a very specific reason why he's doing that drill, and it might help some people, but not everyone. And like Tiger uses the line on the ball, so everyone goes, right, I'm going to use a line on the ball because it's going to make me good at golf. Well, is it? You know, it could make you worse. So it's interesting. I have a good story. Stuart, Stuart Morgan, who you probably who you know of, yeah. Stuart Morgan told me uh, I'd say it was probably the either last year or maybe 2019. In his role as the director of golf for Swiss Golf, he sent I think it was six or seven players in the Swiss in the Swiss national team to Phil Kenyon, uh, the uh, to have a look at their putting and stuff. And he said it was remarkable. He said they each came back with a completely different story for how their session went with Phil. And he said there was, there was no overlap. Now they all loved it. They all got a huge amount from it, but there was no overlap on the tasks that they were doing, on the drills that he gave them, on the, 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 the suggestions he made about the type of grip they need to use at the point of the, nothing. Because it's, that's bespoke, you know? It was, there's no point in me doing something generic for golfers at this level because it just is a waste of their time. It might be really easy and quick for me, but, and I always, I've gone back to that on a few occasions, you know, when people have asked me, you know, what, what, what are you doing with the golfer right now? And, you know, I'd, I'd love to know what you're doing. And I'm so, oh, I'd happily tell you, but I'm not too sure if it's going to have impact on what, you, what you're going to do because it's not you. Sure. That's a perfect example. Six, I think six, I think it was six guys went and not a single thing was similar about their story, apart from the fact that just, they loved it and it was really they really felt it was for them and that goes back to that authentic practice once again you know it's absolutely are you it's um yeah i'm interested to know sort of phil very well and you know that he he is that's probably why he is one of if not the best putting coach in the world right because 
he doesn't have a, a system, a method. He very much coaches the individual and improves them as an individual. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't know Phil that well. I'd know of him, of course. Um, but again, it goes back to that individual. I'd say, I would say there's a, there's as much time spent trying to get to know the person as anything else, because that's that's the key part of that coach athlete relationship to really figure out well how my, my job as the coach is to be adaptable here you know it's not a case of i'm going to my way and he's got to fit to my thing and if he doesn't fit to my thing well you know it's his loss my philosophy is okay if, if i'd like to work with this person so i've got to try and find where where they're at i've got to go to where they're at and then we've got to try and figure out a working relationship that you know the, all of that all that that speaks to all of their current experiences but that might also draw them towards future new experiences as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. The um, what, one thing I was going to say, um, Ed, is uh, a, a guy I think we both know very well. Peter Arnott is um, a sort of legend in in this um, sort of practice part. You know, I'm sure sure you know, know the boy well, and um, I know he's recently um, is is building his. Um, caught fire and he's in a bit of trouble we're not in trouble but he's obviously a, a, a terrible things happen so i wish him all the best um with with the recovery of that absolutely but, if we can just if for anybody check out his twitter <clears throat> i think they're doing a gofundme on there just to show some support from because i wholeheartedly agree with you one of the best guys in the industry one of the absolute uh he's he, he, uh, pure as pure a coach as you're going to get who really is for the individual. So but anytime, when any hard times fall on anybody, you want them to do well. But Peter is certainly one of those guys who deserves a break after his recent, his recent uh, situation, yeah. 100%. So on, on, on the note of like what Pete does a lot of, like um, chaoticness and uh, random practice, creative practice, so talk, talk to me and sort of the listeners about why that kind of practice is important for developing skill? Yeah, good question. I think because for the re- same rationale that, that Peter would use it is because it, it simulates and is representative of what golfers experience when they play the game competitively. The number of variables that can, that can fall at your feet in a single hole of golf, let alone 18 holes of golf, are so vast. There's a kick that you can get that you didn't expect. There is a, a lie. The wind conditions, the, the the wind direction, the the way the greens are playing, and so it's so multitude. It, it in it, it itself is a chaotic environment. Are there stable things at play? Of course, there are stable things like maybe maybe just even the physical characteristics of the individual. You know, down to simple things like their body isn't going to change that much from the first tee shot to the last put on the, on the, on the 18th. So that's quite stable. But even within the, the state, within the person, there's huge chaos because their mind is probably going 100 miles an hour at some points during the game, maybe because they've birdied a hole they've never birdied before, or they're on a run of birdies. Or the other way, it's going 100 miles an hour out of control because they've actually had a run of bogeys in a row and, and so on and so forth. So there's stable environments, there's stable aspects of the of the round of golf, but there's also these unstable environments, uh, aspects. And that's even before we get to the chaos of what can happen outside of our control, you know, 
which is something happening elsewhere or with a playing partner and so on and so forth. And I think the more representative our, our practice can be of these type, this type of a variable environment, quite chaotic, uh, changeable, requiring you to be able to adapt on the go, the greater likelihood of then you being comfortable with that sense of chaos. And again, there's a kind of a cliche, get comfortable being uncomfortable. But it's a cliche because it kind of makes sense, you know, it, it's up. And, and I think that's the, a lot of the work that, that Peter does is so solely based around building a more robust athlete when it comes to decision-making and problem solving, which are two massively key aspects in the game of golf, no matter what your handicap is or, or, or what tour you're on as a pro. If you are, if you are, able to have a clear mind to make some good decisions because you're taking in all the all those variables and then within within that uh, within that situation to be able to tap into the problem solving aspects of yourself you know to be curious about a shot to be curious about how to to you know finish a hole and, and uh, well let's say and take on a hole it might be a dog leg to the left and par five and so on okay so it's a it's a par five it's a five piece puzzle well, figure it out. Problem solve yourself into it, you know, as opposed to thinking of the whole thing too much and, 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 and seeing all where the hurt is and seeing all, you know, as opposed to, no, hang on a second. Uh, I want to figure this out. I want to give myself the best opportunity to, to figure out the problem that's in front of me for the next 10, 12 minutes. And that's where some good decision making then comes in with that type of problem solving approach. But b- back, to the, back to that question, the purpose for the work that someone like Peter does and, and others like, like him and myself is to create that robust golfer, that golfer who's actually able to take a beat in the midst of all the chaos when, when you absolutely crush one down the middle and it takes a really funny kick and all of a sudden you find yourself a foot inside the rough and you're like, well, it's okay, I just have to figure this out as opposed to having your mind back to where the, where the ball should have been, as opposed to having your mind where your body is right now, which is over the ball. And that's a big, there's, there's an awful lot to be said to practice with that, that um, sense of adaptability uh, and almost that, that sense of curiosity, you know, mm. rather than wishful thinking as you play the game, a sense of curiosity of like, oh, well, it kicked. So I can't wait to see what I've got over here. Let me see the light. Okay. Oh, so that's the light. All right. Well, I'm going to have to do something with this because I'm, I could get a flyer out of this. So I've got to put that into the old computational thinking about how I want to play this shot. Let's say, you know. Absolutely. I've, um, I've seen, uh, I spent some time with Peter and I've seen him like pick up people's golf bags and have you seen him to shake everything out of it? It's like, oh man, it's just hilarious to watch people like, you know, they're flapping, lying around, you know, but what great way, you know, you've got to tee off in two minutes and they're like, well, their whole golf, the whole world's upside down. But um, the amazing thing is, and I often find it because as you know, I'm a huge fan of the work that he does, okay? And I be I'm regularly in touch with him. We have a little mini WhatsApp group who we're in touch with and stuff, but as well. But the reason I like it is because it the the approach itself weeds out the golfers because of that idea, as I spoke about earlier, that sense of 
Well, are you going to do what you need? Or are you going to do what you want? And, and, and he's very quick at identifying what a golfer actually needs based on a little bit of a, you know, retrospective history chat and or where, where have you played well and where have you played poorly and what are, what are the patterns of your behavior? Okay, hmm, right. Okay, there's a few things I'd like to throw at you, you know? And he'll go, he'll go straight at those things. And you'll, of course, we've all had the situation of golfers who will repel, you know? Put up the blocker straight away and be like, oh yeah, and, and then what's the first thing they do? Oh yeah, he's a bit of a nut job. Oh, he's a bit crazy. And you're like, hang on, you know, you're deflecting right now. Um, and maybe what maybe what you're actually getting here is a really res- a guy who really respects you, and is actually prepared to fall out with you to get you past things that have been consistently hampering you in the past. Hmm. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be lovely and and all you know rosy in the garden. But if you're prepared, if you can, if you trust him, which you should, well, you know what, you're going to come through. And look back on that former version of yourself and think, "Wow, look at what a, look at the, look at the silly things that you took myself up in the past, compared to look at where I am now, where I'm a more robust and more able to, you know what? Also, be nicer to myself on the course. <laughs> Golf is incredibly self-brutalizing. It's in, in, like the last few years for me." has been an eye-opener in that respect, you know? And it's, and it's tough because it's an individual sport, so they don't have teammates to, 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 to speak to and, and, and discuss things with and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of self, self-beating up. And, and I think people, you know, who engage in this type of an approach to coaching, and Peter's one of them, is, is prepares these players to not only just to deal with these situations better, but also to, to treat themselves better, you know? At least how little of that is out there as well, and I think players can really benefit from from that 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 aspect of performance as well. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think going back to <clears throat> we're, we're giving Peter a big big up here. We'll we'll stop now, but I'll give him one more. I was just going to say what he does very well is listen, and I think that skill and that you're saying that he's you know communication, but it comes from listening to what the actual player is saying to him. So um, anyway, we'll stop being nice to him now because he is Scottish. <laughs> but I think it, you've got a very important point there because even if I look at, let's say, my own, my my approach, let's say, with, with players, and even in those early chats with a player, let's say, you know, when you're trying to, you know, you, you hear from a friend or someone puts you in touch with someone and all of a sudden that's that first conversation, let's say, you know? <clears throat> You're like, oh, hi, you know, I was wondering, you know, I've heard a bit about this or someone told me I should call you and all, you know. Even those words, you, you get a handle on where that person's at. That if you don't listen, you're, you're, gonna, you're actually going to miss out some key information about this individual. So, for example, just what I just said there. Oh, you know, Johnny told me I should call you. That's a, that's a pretty strong statement. That's not this person seeking you out that's that's them immediately putting a barrier up here to suggest and so so that requires a very particular approach you know because they're they're immediately not convinced that they should be doing this anyway they're immediately not convinced of you know as opposed to you know oh I've seen some of the stuff and I oh I know a guy who who I know a guy who you're working with and I kind of like some of the things he was saying and I'm just maybe curious and it's a completely different approach for that first phone conversation now as a coach. 
Well, your job is to, is in one sense, is to keep them on the line, you know, because mm. I have an interest in people, which I think coaches, we all do. If, we're, if you're coaching, you're interested in, in somebody else, you know, you're interested in working with someone else. It's not just a, it's not just about you. Now you've got to work on yourself quite a bit so that your own biases and blind spots don't invade your your coaching space. But as a coach, you're you're interested, and I think I know going back over my career, I think there's been, there's been times when I my biases have gotten in the way and 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 the line has been cut too soon, mm-hmm. and and they were probably right to because maybe, you know what I mean at at, at that time. But I also there's also times when I've, I've kind of looked back on certain situations like ah, there's so much more I could have learned from that situation if I didn't try to own it so much. You know, it's not about me. As the coach, you're not the important one, are you? It's all about the player. And yeah, I think like something I've learned since, you know, since I've been a coach, I used to like the, in the early days was like, OK, I'm going to I'm going li- to be quiet till he finishes talking till I tell him what I'm going to say. Do you know what I mean? It'd be like, right, I'm going to let him have his two minutes worth now till I tell him what I'm going to tell him. And now it's like that two minutes of him talking is the gold. But um, yeah. I had a conversation yesterday with a coach and we that exact point came up. That difference between listening to respond or listening to understand. And if you're listening to someone to respond, you are not hearing what they're saying. And you actually will never understand them if you're just waiting for your turn to speak. Hmm. And and yeah, I think it's it, it's 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 a key it's a key thing in my, certainly in my coaching philosophy. Um, but it's a key thing because because of me, I've made some absolutely horrendous errors in that space in the past, Ali. You know, and, hmm. and been quite fortunate to have colleagues and friends and mentors who who will call me on it which I think is another thing that coaches need to be better at doing which is just building that network of people that are going to keep them straight you know and not blow them up and not be all no just call it and have them come into your session and I I called there recently from a guy that I, I just have chats with he said look at you know when things clear up, can I can I come over and have a look at the session and whatever? I said, of course. I said, now when we're going to do it, I don't know. But the first, my first response is, yeah, of course, come in. I said, no, there's a couple of caveats. You you've gotta you've gotta sit with me afterwards. You know, you've gotta tell me things that you think maybe I'm not aware of. And you know what I mean? Mm, totally. Uh, the, the little stinging conversations oftentimes are those ones where you're like, wow. Oh, that's that's going to help. That's going not just going to help me, but it's also going to help future people I work with. You know, massively, massively, yeah. Ed, just going back to um, to the creative practice. As kids, or not as kids, but kids as a rule tend to do a lot of creative practice because adults think it's messing around, but kids are just being kids and trying different shots. And then when people get to a certain ability or to a certain age, they tend to like think they should grow up and, and stop being like, like that. Why do you think that is? And, and what can we do to yeah, help those golfers? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a really ugly word coming here. Control. We, 
it's it's terrible how impatient we become when kids become move into adolescence and the more in fact it's even more important that we're patient with young people through through adolescence especially because there's so much going on with them hormonally and peak height velocity stuff is going on and growth spurts and that, you know it's endless you know and um, socially even there's things going on boys girls and that you know it's crazy stuff and yet we seem to get more impatient with them at this really critical time of their development and um, i love what you were saying at the start kids oh they're so creative in their practice they live it and i remember it myself i was in my back garden and our national sports are hurling and football and even though i would have never played at a, an elite level I must have scored so many winning sport goals and points. And I really believed it in my back garden because I had said I was the crowd in one moment and I was passing it off to someone and I got the ball back. You're living it. You can see it. You can feel, you can taste. You can taste Croke Park, which is our, you know, national stadium. In the same way, and then every, every you know, February through to April, I was in the Five Nations zone, now with the Six Nations. But I was... Ali Campbell and Michael Kiernan kicking conversions over the house between the two chimneys of the house, you know? And then it became Wimbledon. And I was, you know, <laughs> Boris Becker and Pete Sampras out in the road with it. And I was completely and utterly immersed in it in the exact same way kids are immersed in it because they own the decision that they're making about it and they make it so authentic to themselves. So much of the practice that pros do lacks that authenticity, lacks that context that gets them really feeling it, and also lacks that the purpose of why they're doing it, the, the, the urgency about it, you know? There's an urgency when you practice as a kid. It's not even practice, it's play. They're, 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 they are messing around, but it's, it's messing around with, in a kid's way, which is serious stuff. Mm. There's a huge paradox there, you know? I'm, I'm just messing around, but so much is happening at that time. Whereas adults see it as messing around and think, I'm messing around, there's nothing happening. You're like, no, 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 in your head, nothing's happening. But if only you could remember what you were like then, and only if you could get a, an insight into what they're thinking and hearing, seeing and feeling, you'd realize this is pretty powerful playtime right now. Um, and I think it comes back to that idea of patience and impatience. It is unfortunate. Uh, and, and look, any of the guys that I work with will tell you, I, I've, I speak to them at different times around that uh, kid-like practice. You know, what, uh, you know how, how used you, how did, how did you get good at a short game? Oh, we would, you know, we'd be down and there'd be four of us around the, the pitching green and it would be after a game and we'd all put in like 50p and this kind of stuff. And then it would go, you know, and then you had to sing in front of the person or you had to go inside the clubhouse and you had to ask the, you know, the, the assistant pro for something or you had to, you know, one of the other members, of, you had to ask a girl out and there was always a consequence. There was always something on it. There was always this edge. There was always this sense of, I've got to do this for myself, which added to, it was always there anyway. And then all of a sudden they are steered away from that into an accumulation of shots. How many shots did you hit today? And you're like, what? That's not a measure of how good you're going to get. Well, how, 
how many quality shots did you get today? Oh, what's quality shot? Oh, the quality shot is how many shots did you take that had a context behind it, had a purpose, really strong rationale for why you were doing it, how it was linked into your whole game with a consequence for, from that shot. Being a, you know, and it's a multi-layered approach for these quality shots. You're like, oh, maybe 12. All right. Because you, the first thing you told me is you hit three balls today. So what about the other 180, 288 of them, let's say, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's not to say that, you know, players shouldn't or can't or don't work on a technical aspect of their, of their game. Of course, because it's a technical sport. But it's a technical sport because it's skill-based, which means that every skill-based sport in the world is a technical sport. Golf does not own that. But the golf <coughs> culture and traditions and so on and so forth make you think that, well, golf is very technical as opposed to well, volleyball is technical too. And so is, you know, swimming is technical and curling is technical. And, but golf thinks it owns the idea, well, it's a very technical sport. Hmm. I don't actually know of a sport that's not technical. It's, it's just, interesting, isn't it? Like the technique is important, but it definitely isn't everything, is it? And uh, you, you talking there um, brought memories of me looking at your Twitter a few days ago of that dog um, riding a skateboard. Yeah. And you were like, if he was my coach, I'd have been just fine. And it's it, nobody showed the dog the technique of where to stand and how to corner and how to, but he figured it out, right? Yeah. And, 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 and I actually meant that. I skateboarded, you know, like, like all the guys in our area and whatever, you know, we all went through the skateboarding phase back in the 80s. And it was incredible how much we learned from each other because, again, skateboarding, snowboarding and all these kind of, they call them extreme sports, but they're not. These sports have an incredible culture of propping each other up and supporting each other to try and try again and go again and all oh, pushing the envelope. It's never about, no, no, but do it this way. No, 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 it, no, you got it. And the only reason I got worse or didn't improve, let's say, is I tried to actually technically improve how I skateboarded. And so what happened? Sure, I got, got way too much inside my own head. And other guys in my area got really good. Why? Because they just didn't, it's not that they didn't take it, uh, like, I was going to say they didn't take it as seriously as I did. They got better than me. So they obviously did. Just, they didn't, they didn't ruin it by making it more than it actually was, which is all about exploration, figuring it out and being prepared to fail. I didn't like failing. And it massively hampered my development because I didn't like failing at it. Because how I viewed failure in it. And I think that's a huge part of a process that some players need to go through. If you do not like failing and so on and so forth, and if you are very particular about what you do and very meticulous in your approach, get out of golf fast because it will ruin you. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a, it's a good point. A lot of money from psychotherapists and psychiatrists and get out quick. Whereas if you're prepared to be in there and appreciate the chaos of it, appreciate the, the ebb and flow of the game, that there's, what is it, 750 or so muscles pulling on 206 bones in an explosive high-velocity movement across three, four different planes around the body. What are you trying to, like, 
that's even before we get into the number of thoughts that could be running through your, your mind at that point in time and your focus of attention and where is it at. And it's so much better to embrace the exploration as opposed to control the discovery. So much, so much more important. It's a big word, isn't it? Control. That's uh, hmm. yeah, and I think that's why when I saw that dog, like I was brought back. And again, you see it, you see it. The the free climbers, the parkour runners, the 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 free soldiers, the solo climbers on the on the on the cliff face, and so they learn from this community of engagement. There's a real love of figuring it out. Also knowing. I never will because it's, it's, there's going to be something different each time. And there's going to be something that I'm going to have to adapt to. And, and that's the fun of it because I'm not stuck so rigidly to rules and schema and all that. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, golf is, is sometimes in some hands, it can be, it can be very rigid like that. Um, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Well, my head's uh, spinning again with questions. We, we still need to come into that previous one, which is to the, uh, to the how to recover from a bad shot but something you've just said sit like um, a couple of minutes ago um simulating simulation or visualization or targeting call it whatever you will that pre thing you see and do before you hit in my opinion i often say to golfers like for putting or it's for, it's for uh, i say for putting then I say for golf, but then I say like in life, I almost say it's one of the most important skills in life. Now, I don't know the science behind that. Can you help me? Not, not necessarily like, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to ask really, but let's talk about visualization because I just love it and I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, I think, I think visualization is, is, one of those, is one of those things that can be very powerful for, for a player in any aspect. We see it in a load of different sports. You know, we see people... You know, uh, preparation, uh, preparation before an event. Uh, uh, there was some fantastic footage in the Formula One series that was on Netflix of of drivers just sitting in the in the garage in the in the pits before getting into the car and so on, and so on. or then getting into the car and just you see them visualizing themselves going through certain turns and so on and so forth. Okay, it's not that they and again the the very. What, what tends to happen sometimes is people misinterpret visualization as, a, oh, this is a, a mapping and I'm, I'm putting this exact representation of this in my mind and I'm going to live this and play this out because I'm going to set it off in motion. It's going to run perfectly. I, I'm, I'm not too sure I, I would agree with, with that, that, that interpretation of it. I'm much more inclined to, let's say, even based on some of the evidence, it's, it's, it's a priming of one sense and oftentimes from a confidence perspective because I would, again, you even see it from some of the interviews that, that you'll see from drivers in Formula One and, you know, you'll see it with skiers at the top of the hill. They're up at the top of the hill before they even go through the gates. They're going through all the bends and the turns at the top of the hill. That's as much for me a confidence builder as opposed to them saying, oh, it's going to be exactly as I have visualized here. Because, of course, they're not naive enough to think that it's going to be exactly that way, especially, especially let's say, in the scheme. The last person down the slopes is the best, is the number one ranked person that day. But they are also the person who's going down the slope when 60 other people have gone through all those bends and turns before them. So the last time they saw that bend and turn in their reconnaissance walkthrough early that morning, 
there are no rivets and divots and gullets and whatever you can imagine on that course that were not there three hours previous when they did their reconnaissance. So they're not, look, they're not doing it in such a specific way as to say, oh, brain, remember this now because this is exactly what's going to happen. No, no, it's about, it's a confidence building thing to maybe make them realize, oh yeah, I, I know the general way that the course is going to go, but I'm also need to be wholly ready to adapt and perceive what's happening right there in front of me when I get to it. And that's the same from a golf perspective. If you're sitting at home before a ground of golf and you're visualizing, well, I'm going to do this drive here and it's going to land here and then I'm going to hit, well, and it normally lands around there and I'm going to hit seven iron into that green because I'm 165 out and, and then the green is always sloping back into me. So I'm going to make sure I hit into the bank. It's going to, if you're stuck on that type of a narrative that's that rigid, that for me is not uh, visualization. That's neuroticism. Hmm. Because that's not possible for you to control again. And that's where sometimes visualization can get out of hand with players because they get to the first tee and they do crush the drive down the middle that they hoped. But you know what? Maybe it was on the freak day. They hit their, 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 their playing partner's ball and their ball ended up in the rough. Now what? Where does your, where's your visualization go then? Well, it's, it's, it's gone. But what, what the visualization might've done beforehand might've just calmed them and to be like, to remind them, know this course quite well and you know but if you're if you're visualizing in a golf environment for specificity and for rigidity in what's going to happen i think you're running into a lot of trouble there now if you're visualizing on the fly and you've got put and you're or or you have that seven art and you're visualizing the shape of the shot and so on and so forth that's a very different form of visualization because that's Again, that's very much in the moment. I've taken all the information in. The wind is going slightly from left to right. So I'm actually going to draw it into the wind to hold it up. And I'm going to, you know, and you see that shot and you allow that type of a shape of the shot impact how you'll self-organize around the swing and the shot that you're going to take, let's say, you know? And of course, are there things you got to do? Yeah, you've got to take, you got to maybe adjust your, your stance from a fade to a draw. And you've got to, your takeaway is going to be slightly different from a fade to a draw and so on and so forth. But that's still just embedding that idea of the shape of the shot that I, I, that I see in my mind's eye, because that's what I, I, I'm trying to visualize. And how I see that shot is then going to help me create the type of swing that I'd like to then have that shot, you know, hopefully materialize when I put that swing, if I put that type of swing on the ball and so on and so forth and I time it correctly. Well, then I, I increase the likelihood of that being the shot that, I, that, that comes out for me, let's say, you know. And of course, as you know, there's so many other factors getting their distance right and so on and so forth and being able to read how the ball will land and stuff. So I do think there's different types of visualization that, in that regard. Visualization from a preparation perspective, and that is pre-competition and pre-event, and then visualization within the game time, you know, and, mm. and being able to help you see a shot for you to, which for me, helps the person to self-organize themselves into an appropriate action for the task that, 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 that's in front of them. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I want to just, um, it's interesting you're talking about the different types of um, visualization in play and then like preparation. I want to share with you a story that I am, um, my, my hobby is go-karting, right? I love go-karting, go all over the country doing it. And um, at my club in Bristol, I qualified for this sort of regional event. 
and it was down in wherever it was. And so, so I'd never been there before. And um, so I watched YouTube for, I watched a guy do about 10 laps. So I understood, I knew the layout of the track. I knew where to break. I knew how he was turning, knew, you know, and then on the drive down there, I obviously knew the layout of my head and I was simulating going round and round and round and round, right? Which is what you do. And um, I, I must have done 20, 30 laps, right? So, you know, it's about 40 seconds. So I had plenty of time in the car. Um, so I get there. I feel calm. There's like 10 guys there, you know, they're all, we're all dressed up like idiots. Think we're all, um, you know, Michael Schumacher. Um, in all the gear, no idea. Anyway, so... So we go out for a five-minute practice, 10-minute practice. So we jump in the carts. They're electric carts. Now, initially, that was like, oh, I've never done an electric car, right? All of a sudden, they're electric. They're not petrol. Anyway, so I go out, and I happen to be one of the first cars, uh, um, the first um, first onto track. That first lap, like cold tires, didn't know the track. I was, say it myself, unbelievable. I just... Like I knew what I was doing. I knew where I was breaking. That first lap, I absolutely smashed it, flew around. I didn't worry about anything. And looking at the lap times of, after that, by the way, like I ran out of talent and everyone else caught up with me. But that first lap, I was two seconds, 40 second lap. I was two seconds faster than everyone else. And, and they'd never been there before, right? None of us had been there before. So like that first lap, I was two seconds faster than everyone else. After that, I think I come fifth out of 12 or whatever it was, right? Or um, seventh out of 12. So I wasn't like the fastest, but I don't know. Like, what do you think to that? That was just, I, I felt a bit spooky. It's a bit strange. Yeah, but I, I suppose like anything else, you, there was a lot of parts of that track. So again, there's there are elements of, of the track, let's say that again, going back to stable and unstable things, okay? So a track like that compared to let's say the skiers, the track won't change that much on a karting track from the first person driving on it to the 50th person driving on it. Okay. Unless of course in the middle of a, in the middle of a, a, a lap, someone hits the tires and some tires move out of the way and the corner gets changed and so on and so forth. But maybe, and I don't know if it's significantly changed, they may stop the race to actually reset the track if it's not safe and so on and so forth to return it to the way it was, let's say, right? Mm. So there are elements that are much more stable in that environment than there would be in another environment, okay? That said, the, 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 there are unstable environments, aspects, which of course are all the other drivers, okay? And how they may impact on you, maybe from when you do your first lap, when it's very much you on your own and you've got a bit of, uh, all of a sudden then having to manage the overtaking, undertaking maneuvers and whatever else is going on. And the reason I'm kind of speaking like this is I, a number of years back, I did work with a rally driver and, and at a very high level, in fact. And one of the things we spoke about was visualization. And one of the things we worked on, because again, in rally, you get a huge amount of time to, to, to reconnaissance, you know, in, in, I suppose a huge amount of time in one sense is that you do get to go through the, 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 the course first with your co-driver and the notes, and then you get a lot of time between the end of the first reconnaissance and the time you're, you're in the starting line on the ramp. And then, because you've gone through those notes then meticulously with the person. 
But one of the things that I learned from that guy was, he said, look, it's, it, it's all hugely important. And I said, I'll always take more information than less information. It's a key thing to take away from me. He said, but I'll never, I'll, I'll never live by it, he said. Mm. And I said, how do you mean? He said, well, he said, because it's just, there's too many unknowns. He said, there's loads of things that we know, but there's just too many unknowns because of, again, in rally, a lot of unstable stuff. The difference between a gravel track or a dirt track or a concrete that goes into a forest or, you know what I mean? Mm. And, and even some of the corners, even on a, on a good road, if there's some corners, they, they, they will create divots and, and, and gullets in the road bit from the constant turning and stuff. And I always liked that. He said, I will take more information than less information, but I'll never live, I'll never hold myself on it, you know? So that, and I asked him, I said, I said, why? He said, because he said, I've got to be able to, number one, hear my driver, but also be able to remember that he's not looking at the road in the way that I am looking at the road. And ultimately, I'm the guy steering the car. And I think that's a little bit for, 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 from where you're at. There's an awful lot to be taken. More information is always better than less information. But the question then is, the translation of that information into something that keeps you with almost a clean slate on each one. I, I know it, but I'm going to attack it like I've never seen it before in, in, with the aggression of knowing it, but also with the, you know, the aggression of still wanting to go faster and find a better way, a quicker way. That, again, that's that curiosity. Whereas if I'm stuck on a plan or a schema or something, that pretty much will potentially limit how much exploration, how many, how many additional edges I can find it. For example, Lewis Hamilton, you look at Lewis Hamilton, because I'm a big, big F1 fan. Same car as all the drivers who've driven with him over the years. Okay. You look at, uh, you look at him right now with, uh, oh my God, I forget his name, his co-driver, his teammate. Bottas. Bottas, Valtteri Bottas. And you look at the same car, and yet even you look at their, 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 their qualifying laps, and when they go to Q2, Q1, Q2, Q3, it's incredible to see the lines that Hamilton takes. And oftentimes, they are lines that are similar, largely similar to everyone else in the grid. But as he goes through the laps, he seems to find that extra little bit out of a corner that he previously didn't find. And he says as much in his interviews, like, yeah, you know, how did, you know, the interview last time, oh, that was just seemed seamless. Said, well, yeah, as the race went on, I, 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 I found better ways of going around some corners. Now, the only reason you're able to find better ways at his level, like he's, on, he's already on the limit of the limit hmm. because he's not locked into a mindset. immovable visualization of what it is. He knows what's coming up. Oh, it's a turn here. And I, and I know it's a left-hander. I know it's a right-hander. And I know it's this. And I know I can you know, open up DRS here or whatever. But he's always doing it with this sense of curiosity of, yeah, but can I push a little bit more here? What if I go a touch later here or a touch earlier here? That line might give me just that extra little bit of a you know, follow-through into the next corner and stuff. So I do think... Visualization is important and it can, and it can for, for some people, and it can be very encouraging from a confidence perspective in preparation. But I also do think it has its limitations if you do not allow yourself to be in the moment. 
when you then are in that in, in situ. I love that. I love that. It's a lot. So it's a great takeaway there. That, yeah. And your, your man who said, like, he likes to have all the information, but then use what he needs. So that, that, that's well, well, I go back to another another brilliant driver um, uh, who was in le le less brilliant cars than Hamilton was Jensen Button. I couldn't believe all the years watching Button. It was it must have been mentioned almost every Grand Prix. They're like, well, he's the smoothest driver out here. And his tires are always in better condition than anyone else's and so on, all this kind of thing. And even the year that he got in a good car with the brawn, it was incredible the difference it made because of his smoothness. You And you'd watch, and they even used to split screens of him going around the corner and others. There was way more, you know, a steering wheel movement from other drivers compared to him because his reading of it was just incredible. He, he, he was do a lot less turning of the steering wheel than other drivers. And he was a lot smoother in and out of corners than other drivers. And again, they're all seeing the same track, but he was seeing it in a way, and he would say it. And I think one the year he won in, in Monte Carlo in, in Monaco, he said he was like, I know this I know this track like the back of my hand, and yet every time I come here, I try to come here as a newcomer. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, that's class. Because of course, of course, he knows it. It, it. It's one of the most iconic tracks in Formula One. Everyone knows it. You know, like I, I could probably even close my eyes and go go around the track. I've seen it so many times. Yeah. Yet here is a guy saying, but I try to come here every year as a newcomer. That curiosity, I think, is something that golfers can take a huge amount from to infuse into their practice. Yeah, powerful stuff. I love that. I love that. Okay, let's go. Let's go on to um, post shot. So, yeah. And if we have time, we might talk about a little bit of quiet iron and during shot. But let's talk about yeah. post shot. So, let me set the scene like a golfer first hole of the tournament. Knocked on the green in par, four putted, double bogey, raging. You're going to be pissed off. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's a big one for me. Uh, it's a, it, it occupies quite a bit of the work I do with guys, um, and actually <laughs> occupies quite a bit of uh, great chats with with Peter Arnold and Stuart Morgan over the years because I have a. I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about uh, the idea of momentum in golf. And um, I oftentimes am very critical in private. Uh, I know this is going to be quite public, but, but about commentators and how they miss, how they misrepresent the players sometimes, you know, and I know they have a job to do to be somewhat uh, provocative in their, in their commentary and so on and so forth. But oftentimes I hear play, I hear them going on about, oh, Oh, his momentum was lost in that moment, or oh, he's he was on such great momentum here, and it just I don't see it. I don't see golf as being a momentum sport for loads of reasons, apart from the the definition of momentum from a physics perspective, but also just the description of the game of golf. You, it's very hard to have momentum. Momentum requires consistent application, right? You need this constant motion. Now, if I hit a drive off the first tee and I'm playing with two other guys, so it's Thursday, Friday in the pro event, I'm playing with two other guys for the first two days, it's five, six minutes before I hit my next shot, my next shot. Four, four to six minutes. Mm -hmm. There's no momentum there. <laughs> I haven't, it's just, 
And it's a word that has been misused and misappropriated into, into golf. Because the actual, the ideal scenario in golf is to actually be able to be free of everything. Especially not moment, especially not momentum. And again, you'll hear people, oh, yeah, but if you're playing well, you want to stay on that. But again, how often of the tens of thousands of rounds that are played every year, every few years, how often does that actually happen? Once in the blue moon? But then we all we all grab a hold of it because DJ shoots 30 under some week. Hmm. But what about all the other guys who have four birdies in the first front, front nine and then come home one over? Or four under, nothing for the last 11 holes. No, you know what I mean? And so on and so forth. And, and I think it's something that I think we need to, I think we need to be better as coaches with in this regard, but also as players, we need to stop looking to connect the dots in the game of golf. Because the only reason, the only connection for why the ball is where it is, is because that's where you hit it. That's it. Nothing else can nothing else can impact on what you do next, and so on and so forth. And I think that's something that I that's something that I I, I work quite a bit with on golfers, and it's one of the things that I probably work with across the golfers. You know, because there's a lot of things. There's a, in most cases there's things I'm doing very individually, and there's no overlap. But because of the culture and the traditions of the game, the, the kind of resilient beliefs in the game, this is something that a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of time has been put in. With, with a lot of guys because so often it comes up in conversations. Oh, I just lost my momentum, you know, and all these things are, oh, you know, I, I, I got to, you know, get to the turn in this number. And you're like, well, should the, guy, the only reason we think of it as the turn is because the cards are split into nine and nine, you know, the of course, there's no idea that, that it, this is the, you know, and, and, and I know it's all cliche, but the ball has no idea where it's, where it's sitting. The golf clubs have no idea what hole you're on, what score you've got. And yet to, to try and attach it, to connect it, itself to something other than what it is, is wholly um, disadvantageous to, to performance and consistency of performance, in fact. And so to, to, to take it directly to what you were asking about that post shot, you know, just, Got it on the whole, got it on the green in regulation the first night four put it. And I still have 17 holes to go. But so many golfers will catastrophize that situation. And I think that's that 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 work that I spoke about there is all about limiting catastrophization, you know, limiting making a, a mountain out of a molehill. Mm. Equally the other way, that you chip in off your second. You know, you get a two on the first in a par four. Lovely. It's it's a it's an eagle off the, out of nowhere. That means absolutely nothing on the second tee box. And yet, how often do we see people chipping in on a hole to get a two and they bogey the next hole? Hmm. And and again, I think so much of that comes back to this heightened sense of connectivity, as opposed to oh, I, I'm playing a course. It's a championship course. I'm a pro. Seventy-two, seven, par seventy-two. So to the 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 this this is a seventy-two part puzzle. And I'm going to be given, and I've used this analogy many times. I'm going to be given. I'm going to open up the box. I can see that the, the puzzle is on the front of the box. I'm going to open up the box, and and, and you know, oh, inside the box, there's a couple of pieces already made up. You know, 
No one in their right mind will take apart those two pieces if they open up a puzzle. They just won't. Oh, well, there's two pieces already made. Okay, we put them over there. <laughs> I mean, on some holes, on a part three, you might get that done. You might fix that three-part puzzle in two parts because that those two pieces are already put together. Lovely. But it has nothing to do with the next hole, which is a four-part puzzle or a five-part puzzle. And your job is get around this 72-part puzzle in as, by using as, as few of those separate moves as possible. And if there's a bunch of pieces made up in the, car, in the box when you open it, great, keep them together. Then all of a sudden you're closing in on a 69, a 68, and, and so on and so forth. But what we do is we put, a, we, we, we put so much into the cumulative score even before it's happened. I have, I have a par, you know, I, 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 I'm three under after six. <gasps> oh my God, so if I'm three under after six, and I'm going to, if I could just end, and, and the three par fives in the back nine, and all my other. Uh, You're gone. You're gone. And it, it, it's something I tweeted a number of a while back. Michael Gervais, he's the performance coach with the Seattle Seahawks, with uh, Tim Carroll uh, in the NFL. And he, he said a brilliant thing one time. He said, our job as athletes and coaches it's to make sure our mind and our body in the same place at, at one time. If, if I'm over a four foot put, then my mind needs to be on a four foot put. But if I'm over that four foot put thinking, oh, this is, this is to make the cut. Hmm. Well, I'm not thinking about the four foot put anymore. I'm thinking about the cut. Or this is to get me in a playoff. Or this is to, no, no, no. It's a four foot put. And I still go through the same process that I have to read the, the line and make sure I've got the pace and so on and so forth. And it is about trying to inoculate yourself into the moment. Not the next moment, because we have no idea what that's going to be yet, but just that moment. And I think that's a hugely powerful body of work that a player can engage in, because what it will do is it will set them free to actually experience the game as it's unfolding in front of them as opposed to letting the game run away from them based on the score that they're at. Three under after nine, and they've run away with themselves. They're thinking of a couple of holes ahead. Three over after nine, and they're running away from them. They're already checking, can I get out of here early? Get it, you know, get to the airport tonight. Because of the word momentum. Because, yeah. Because of the word, and again, and again, Peter and Stuart, if they listen to this, they'll, they'll know like what I'm talking about. The, the, the game of golf is so heavily skewed to the guys who are on form. It does a massive disservice to the pros out there who deserve just as much of a proper fair go at it as anybody else. But, but they don't because it's all skewed towards the top guys. So, so on the weeks, let's say that, 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 that uh, DJ, Dustin Johnson, was uh, having, a, having an off couple of weeks, remember? He could miss two cuts in a row. Did we see much of DJ that week? Nope. Not at all. They don't show us. Have we seen much of Ricky Fowler this season? Or 2020? Nope. But all of a sudden, when, he's, when he plays well and he's in the top five, and he's going, we see all his shots. So we only ever see him when he's playing well. So then that skews in pros' minds about what I should be doing, about what I should be able to do week in, week out. Because, well, actually... All I see is when D, all I see is DJ playing well. Well, they only show you when he's playing well. And it's a bit like the, the match of the day analogy. There was a coach, I remember I saw this somewhere. 
a coach, you, you show, uh, you record match of the day to show his underage team, you know, and just to, you know, because some of them wouldn't have stayed up late at night and to watch and stuff. And one day he asked them, he, uh, the, one day he said, do you have any questions? He said, oh yeah, I said, coach, wh- wh- why, do, why are we so bad on corners? And he said, how do you mean? He said, well, so, coach, you know, I think they were like an under 16 or 17 team or something. He said, we said, you, you know, we, they score on so off so many corners. We see it every week. And he's like, actually, they don't. But they only show us the corners that it'll end up in a goal or something happening in the box. There's loads more corners that they never show us because nothing happens off it. And there's loads more free kicks that they don't show us because nothing happens off it. But all we'll see are the highlights. So it skews, it skews what happens. It skews our thinking about the stats that could be that uh, that the actual stats of the game of football compared to the stats that you could think as the game of football if you only watched match of the day. The exact same thing, and I think, I think golfers, and it goes back to that point earlier about being nicer, being fairer, treating themselves better. That's a huge part of this about having a greater understanding of the culture of the game of golf that does not tell you how you need to experience the game of golf. You've got to find your own authentic way of experiencing the game of golf. That might be very different to the culture of the game, the traditions of the game, and the commentary that feeds us about the game. Because it's just, it's just not the case. It's heavily skewed towards those guys who are doing well week in, week out. And they're different guys most weeks. That's the other side of it. It's interesting, isn't it? Bryson DeChambeau, oh, fascinating to watch. There was a few tournaments at the end of the year last year, didn't feature, didn't see him. Why? Because, and then when did they show him? They show him when he drives a par four. But we don't see it because he was not on form that week. But we only, and I think that's something to feed back into that idea of staying in the moment. Staying in the moment is so important. Can you practice in an environment that, trains you to keep your mind and body in the same place. Unfortunately, when we go to the range, and as you said, go to the range and hit 57 irons in a row, that is the absolute antithesis of mind and body being in the same place. Hmm. We're just not designed as humans to be able to do something 50 times on repeat and have that same attentional focus on every single one of those especially when you consider oftentimes the feet don't move and it's just that kind of ball drag, reach out, drop, drag the ball in again. And again, I've seen, I've seen this at events, been to a lot of events over the years. You'll see a guy and he'll set up his alignment poles and he'll set them up and fine, great, do what you need to do. You'll see the alignment poles being set up, but then you look and you'll spend maybe 8, 10, 12 minutes just watching this guy grooving in his irons. And you're like, well, hang on, if the alignment poles were right for the first shot, how could the alignment poles be right for the 30th shot? If the alignment poles haven't changed, but you've, you're in a different, the ball's in a different position 30 shots later. How possible? And these are European tour players who are working in a alignment stick setup, but they don't move the alignment sticks for each shot, even though the ball moves on each shot. How is that possible? fascinating isn't it how is that possible so that's there's 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 a mismatch straight away there's a mismatch happening between what they're doing and how that is likely to transfer because what they're doing 
isn't itself standing up to a rationale. And that's, and then, and that takes it back into that space of mind and body in the same place. How can I develop practice environments, practice tasks that constantly, if, if you're going to succeed on the task that I've set you, the only way you're going to do it is if you can keep your mind and body in the same place at that time. If you drift at all, you're failing. You're just not going to survive the task. That's what it's like in, on, on the course and in, in competition as well. And I think that's, it's a tough one for, for, for players because I think they're being bombarded by the industry of television and so on and so forth. That just, it's just not fair on them. And I think, I, I think, they, I think players will be well, um, well directed to really try and find out what's, a, what's their authentic interpretation of the game of golf for them. How do I want to not only, excuse me, not only survive in this game, but thrive on this tour but in a way that feels right to me, not with the the golf speak that we all grew up listening to, you know. <laughs> and that's and, and for someone like me who goes out every so often and plays and loves it, I love that because you know it doesn't matter. It doesn't. But if you're expecting to make your living from this, and not only they make your living, but actually have a successful career, that stuff is is very it's poisonous it's poisonous to to it's probably quite poisonous even to the development of, of an effective environment around yourself as well fascinating stuff it's uh it's uh i like that you know line in the body and the mind i like that it's quite sort of you can see it can't you do you know what i mean it's, it's a nice visual and Talk, talk to us about some techniques to, to, to perhaps doing that. We, we, before we come on, we mentioned Sam Vine and Quiet Eye and Joan Vickers and Quiet Eye. Yeah. Um, that's a method. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned two pretty serious, serious people there. Um, I, we, I know we spoke about them before, but it is worth, it is worth guiding people towards their work, you know. Um, Sam Vine and and Joan Vickers around the, the the space of Quiet Eye is worth a look for anybody, even just to Google Quiet Eye, and and even for those even maybe interested in a little bit more in depth stuff, go into Google Scholar and Google Quiet Eye plus Sam Vine or Joan Vickers, and you'll get a lot of stuff, especially in the sports space. Um, I do think it helps. I think Quiet Eye that capacity to 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 spend that extra little bit of time on that final fixation. Is, is a useful tool for, for having your mind and body in the same place at that time. That's, that, that, absolutely. That's got to be one of the top ones for me. Um, outside of that, I think process has a large part to play in mind and body in the same place at the same time. Um, oftentimes, we, you know, I think we have to remember too, there's a lot of golfers out there who, a lot of golfers who, are really good because they used to play a lot of golf as kids. You know, these are these are guys who were playing off plus plus handicaps at 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, 18, 19, 20, they're already off plus three, four, and five, you know, with a huge amount of that is playing 36 holes a day for four or five days a week when they were, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know. Mm. And they got to that level of uh, you know, with play, play with in conditions, you know, play in the environment where they're going to need to also know how to compete. 
very representative of the environment that they're in, which was, well, I got to hit a tee shot and then I got to hit a fairway shot and then I got to hit it. You know what I mean? And there is those little gaps between, between it. So I think what oftentimes happens is when we move into the pro space and people find themselves needing, feeling like I've got to fill my day now with more shots because I've got more time in my hands because it's all I do now, is that process some, can sometimes be misinterpreted in that, in that sense. They spend a lot, I, I've, seen, I've seen and heard of guys who, who, who spend a lot of times dialing in a process on the range. And for me, again, from a common sense perspective, that's not where you dial in a process because it's just not representative of where that process is going to be needed. There are no time constraints on the range. There are time constraints on the golf course. So that's where you work with your coach or whoever else to work on a process over five holes, nine holes, you know, like as you probably are aware, all like 99% of my work happens on the course. On the course, we're figuring stuff out on the course. If it's a process thing, if it's a mind-body thing, if it's a representative task thing, it's just constantly on the course, just throwing different variables at it, different scenarios at it. And even, and even if it's a case of, you know, uh, that we, we, we're saying, oh, look, let, let's just review something. Let's go and just re review last week's event or something. We'll still try and go out in the course and do that. So that we're just used to being on the course when we're reviewing. Let's just take out two clubs and just go walk a few holes while we're reviewing. So that we don't get stuck in the, yeah, let's go, sure, yeah, sure, we're only reviewing. Let's go and hit some shots in the range. Well, hang on, no, let's try and stay away from, from that if, we, if at all possible. Um, and I think that, that, that idea of a process, again, very useful to get a good process around certain aspects of your game for that mind-body idea but it's got to be practiced and developed in the right environment. Otherwise, we're, you're, you are reducing or limiting the likelihood of that process being robust in the, in the authentic environment, in the real environment you want it, which is in, on, under the competitive spotlight. Brilliant. Love that. Love that, Ed. That's, um, yeah, so true, isn't it? So true. Mm. Um, I'm conscious of your time. i got one... Uh, one last question, and it's probably the most important one. Why does Guinness taste nicer in Dublin than it does in the UK? Well, I don't know, first of all, because I drink Murphy's. Oh. Far superior stout. Is it? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, um, but I'm not, I wouldn't, I, I, but that said, I probably have four pints of Murphy's a year, but if I was ever having a stout, it would be Murphy's. And if I can't get Murphy's, it certainly wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be Guinness because Guinness is a Dublin drink and I'm a Cork man and I wouldn't, there's something like the equivalent of a Cardiff person and a, and a Swansea person promoting another person's drink. I know this is somewhat, I know it's a little bigger around the world maybe than Murphy's, maybe, I think, but that's probably just good advertising or something. But a far superior stout, if you're looking for it, is Murphy's. Um, so I'm glad, okay. I'm glad I had an opportunity to promote our local stout um, <laughs> to your millions of listeners, Ali. And Love it. yeah, make sure they enjoy it. Uh, and of course, responsibly. <laughs> not, uh, not having too much. I think um, 
<laughs> where perhaps I was leading was um, the placebo effect. How much of it do you think is like I've been? It, I, I I'll drink Guinness in the UK and it tastes nice. But I go to Dublin and it's beautiful. Then I go on the Dublin Guinness tour and you walk, work your way up till you get to the top and this pint is waiting for you. And it is the most beautiful pint I've ever had. So how much of that is placebo? Well, I think, I, uh, so, so if we are talking about Guinness in a serious way. <laughs> uh, well, from my understanding, and uh, uh, actually this is, this is going to make you laugh. My sister worked for Murphy's Brewery in, in, in Cork for like 20 years. So I actually do have, some, so strangely, I do have some insights into this. Apparently, uh, travel with um, stout is not good. So the brewery that you were, the, when you come to Dublin, it has traveled far less than it will have traveled if it's getting to you in, in, uh, in Wales or wherever you're, you're drinking it. So apparently, that's quite a thing. So for example, if I go and have a pint of Murphy's here in Cork and I go to Donegal and have a pint of Murphy's, it's better in Cork because it doesn't travel anyway. It's made here and so on and so forth. And apparently, stout doesn't travel as well as maybe horses do when they go racing abroad. <laughs> uh, it's, so, it's not placebo. It, that is it. It is true. Well, well oh, so you got to remember this placebo that you're about. It's likely that you've had a, several more pints of Guinness in Dublin, <laughs> friends, so that everything probably tastes nicer. Everyone looks better. You're, you go to the toilet yourself and you're thinking, you're looking stunning today, Ali. You know, so the, you, know, you, you could come away and think, the toilets in Dublin are amazing. I look fantastic in the toilets in Dublin. But again, I think there's a lot there about how much alcohol you've had on board and affecting <laughs> your interpretation of your very small um, evidence uh, data set that you have there. <laughs> Brilliant. Great, great fun to finish off there, Ed. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so much. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And uh, yeah, hopefully the listeners, uh, I'm sure they will, because there's so many nuggets in there that, um, yeah. Oh, I wonder, are we going to get commission from Peter? Because I don't think I've ever been on a talk before where I've spent a quarter of the, of the, uh, of the discussion talking about someone else. Um, maybe, we, maybe, we, maybe that's what you should do. <laughs> Title it. Ed and Ali chatting about Peter Arnott. Peter Arnott. He's, he's Scottish and Scottish are, you know, the tight, tightest people out there of them all. So we've got no chance of getting any commission from, uh, from him. But uh, no, all seriousness, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your time, uh, Ed, and uh, all the best. See you soon. Thank you.